You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Dan Helix titled, The Most Famous Thursday in History, which is from our Passion Series. For more info, please visit creekside.org. We are in kind of a weird time right now, aren't we? It's, uh, uh, and so in, in seeing this, I saw this news article, it's in, and it's entitled News of the Weird, which is very appropriate and very odd point because it's about this guy uh, in England, Vicar, so he's Anglican, Simon Beach, he's 61 years old of St. Bedeau Parish Church in Plymouth, England. He was, he was uncomfortable as he launched into his sermon on March 22nd of this year because he was doing it virtual like we're doing it. And towards the end, as he was getting ready to, 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 hit that, uh, to hit that last point, he leaned in to the camera and he looked to his left and he said, oh my, I'm on fire. And indeed, he had leaned into a candle in it. Now, I don't know how they got it out, but I do know that the other victors did tell him that, you know, that was kind of taking being on fire for Jesus just a little too far. Anyway, I thought that was kind of humorous and something that was very on point for, for what we're doing. It's kind of funny. We have uh, sayings and songs and names about uh, uh, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays. Um, and even Wednesday has a name, doesn't it? Hump day, getting over the hump of the, of, of the work week. But the only time that I've ever heard a name or a saying about a Thursday is the one we're talking about today. Now, I'm, I'm sure that someone's going to come up and, and correct me uh, uh, There's a, this Thursday or that Thursday, but that notwithstanding, our focus today is going to be on the most famous Thursday in history. And it does have a name. Maundy Thursday. Maundy means the washing of the feet. And this is the day when three of the most significant things reported in our faith Occurred The washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus, the betrayal by Judas, and the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, what we're going to partake in later this morning. And I hope you all have the bread and the juice ready, so this can kind of be a seamless transition when Pastor Terry comes back up and leads us in this wonderful time to sup with God, each as a follower and together as believers. So let's go right to the source this morning. There's nothing like firsthand information, and now in this time, our scriptures, our firsthand accounts, since especially this is John writing, and we're going to read John 13, and it goes like this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing 
And he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Simon Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, their whole body's clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going, who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, not everyone was clean. And we, when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and, and returned to his place, and he said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I, those. I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread is turned against me. And I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. And very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he'd said this, Jesus was troubled in the spirit, and he testified very truly, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another and lost to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple. He said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give the, this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping it in the dish, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, said Jesus. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Judas had charge of the money. Some thought Jesus was telling him to, to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. And then he says, My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
And Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. I don't usually read a whole chapter when I'm doing a sermon, but this one is so rich. And as we go through this, I didn't know where to cut it. You know, life is, is more about preparation than almost anything that I can think of. When we enter into school, the goal is graduation. But it takes years of preparation before you can graduate, before the goal can be accomplished. When someone invites you over for a meal, the goal is to eat the food. But the truth is, it takes a long time to prepare it. And the more fancy the meal, the longer the preparation. Even in preparing a message, there's a whole lot of research and thought and preparation and prayer that goes into it. And what you see on Sundays is just the, re the result of just a lot of preparation. They say the average sermon, if it's done well, takes about 20 hours. Well, it's the same with God. God is the master preparer. He's the master of preparation, isn't he? I mean, think of all the things in your life that happened before you were ready to hear and accept the gospel. For some of us, it was pretty easy. We were raised with it. We never doubted it. It was what we knew. And when the time came to accept it, it was kind of a no-brainer. But there was a moment that all that preparation, that it happened, that it was sealed. For others, it was a longer process. We had to test the waters of life before we could or would believe because it was not something you were raised with or maybe it was something you were raised with, but our personality wasn't about to accept anything that would prove that we weren't in total control. Regardless, there was a period of preparation and what we are seeing in this chapter is the final preparation of God getting ready to save the world. After all, what's the goal here? In school, it's to graduate. In dining, it's to eat. But here is the most lofty goal in, hist in the history of mankind to save the inhabitants of the world, the creation of God, the one he loves so much that will ultimately return to him. I love to say that God spent the first 39 books of the Bible proving that man could not follow his divine plan. Proving that, that, that the way that, that we should live, that God laid out, couldn't be accomplished by man alone. And then he spends the next 27 books of the Bible proving that he had a plan the entire time. You see, God had to prepare man to receive the gift of salvation. And I think this proves two things. Number one, God's patient. He will not execute a plan before it's time. And this has great application for us today, doesn't it? How many of us 
are looking for something in our lives, whether it's a promotion at work, a position maybe even to serve God, or how many of us have struggles in our relationships knowing that God has the answer to our struggles, but for some reason the struggles continue. Maybe God's just preparing you so when he really does give you that answer, you will be able to hear it. Here's the second thing. When it's time for God to act, he acts swiftly. We like to say that God is never late, but he's, he's, he's rarely early, but he's never late. He's the God of on time. So now we find God putting the finishing touches on this master plan. And it's not over yet because the goal is for Christ to be raised from the dead with our sins forgiven. Many things have to happen before that occurs. Here in this chapter, the preparation is about those who are his followers. How many times have we heard the idea of he washed our sins away? Jesus is now washing away the sins of the followers that were closest to him in preparation, not for his dying, but indeed for their sending. To no longer be apostles or disciples, but to become apostles. He is preparing them for the plan that he had the whole time. Not that they were ready to hear yet, even though he's dropping hints left and right. You don't know what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. You can't go where, uh, where I'm going now, but you will, be, uh, you will follow later. And so now Jesus, the one who will be raised, the reason for the season, the focus of most of our lives watching today, Jesus himself is washing their feet. And I would put to you, you can't get much cleaner than that. He's washing them physically here, but literally washing them spiritually when, he, when he's raised with their sins and our sins forgiven. And yet, let's ask the question, after this happened, did any of them sin? How about Judas? Judas was there. He had his feet washed. Judas, we'll see in, in, in a minute, he, part he participated in the Lord's Supper. How about Peter? We know what's coming from him, don't we? Who knows what or who else? And even after they've been washed clean, even after we have been washed clean through the acceptance of the atoning work on the cross, which is very soon to happen in our timeline here, after all that, we are still going to have our moments of imperfection, aren't we? We will still, from time to time, make mistakes, hurt ourselves, hurt others, certainly our holy, loving God who created us for His glory. And so, what we're witnessing here is the first part of this chat. In the first part of the chapter of John, is more of the preparation for the big event that is to come in four short days. And after this, as they go back to the table, we see more preparation. And it gets a little complicated here because there's two things going on. First, in order for the goal of resurrection to be accomplished, Jesus has to be arrested. And since it's pretty clear at this point that those that are not in his group can't get him arrested, it's going to have to be somebody on the inside. Someone who knows him intimately 
is going to have to be willing to give him up to the authorities because the authorities have already tried to trip him up and, and, and they messed that up, didn't they? You may remember the healing on the Sabbath that they questioned, the different questions the Pharisees used in trying to get him to say something that they could prosecute him for and it never worked. I mean, it's almost like a comedy if you think about it, except of the tragic results. So now they need someone on the inside to get this done. And God, knowing this, exposes the heart of one of the followers, Judas. Judas was, was the one who probably was one of the most trusted in the group. For goodness sakes, he had the money. The unusual thing about that is the one that who is the proverbial gold standard, pardon the pun, of betrayal is Judas Iscariot. In fact, from here on out, whenever Judas is mentioned, because there was more than one Judas, it will always be Judas, the one who betrayed Christ. You know, it's almost like the one who betrayed Christ is his last name. And despite all the rom-coms you've ever seen, this is probably the most famous kiss in history when you think about it. And what makes it so famous is not necessarily who he kissed, but indeed who he was. An insider, a follower, a close friend. When one is turned over to the authorities by an outsider, it's like, well, <laughs> what'd you expect? But when it's someone on the inside, we sit up and take notice. Wow, what was he thinking? Was there a problem within the group? Did Jesus make a mistake that someone would be so upset as to turn him in? What's going on here? So here's the perspective. Judas had walked hundreds of miles with Jesus. He sat talking around countless firesides with him slipped out under the stars with him. Judas was there from the beginning. He saw the water turned into wine. He saw the miracles. He saw the blind man see for the first time. He saw the lame after a lifetime of being crippled, healed and walk. My goodness. He saw Jesus bring multiple people back to life. And don't forget, we only know in this word what was reported. How many more did he heal? How many more did he actually bring back to life? And Judas saw it all. Look, Judas is clearly and rightly vilified here. He messed up. It's easy for us to see in retrospect, but this was not something limited to one wayward individual. Unless we be tempted to think, well, at least I'm not Judas because I'm still following Christ. Be careful. There were 11 others you have to ask some questions about. Where were the others as he was being beaten and charged? The only one, the only one we read about is the one who flat out denied knowing him. How is that not betrayal? And the others scattering all over the country. How is that not another form of betrayal? 
Have we forgotten that the very people who laid palm branches out in front of him as he entered into the city, hailing him as a king, are the very same people that later on, when Pilate is going to ask the question, say, crucify him? How's that not betrayal? And isn't that something that should convict us? How many times have we done something that we know is not pleasing to God? And yet he is the one who saved us, not conditionally, but unconditionally. Isn't it amazing that Jesus absolutely proves his own faithfulness to us by going through with the mission? After everyone has left, denied, betrayed Jesus, he doesn't waver from the mission. And it seems like he doesn't love anyone less for it. Who knew that when Jesus later said, even before he's arrested in John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. What an incredible example. All this while still yet knowing what's to come. When it comes to betrayals that Jesus experienced in this one chapter alone in John 13, I would submit that the most obvious one might be Judas, but there were others. Now, as I cast these stones, I'm reminded in my own thoughts what I've done. Not proud of the fact that I probably would have had the thought, well, live to play another day, nothing I can do about this. Yet when I think about this now, in retrospect, I am overwhelmed with the knowledge that those of us who have accepted the gift of resurrection and being counted among those who have received his forgiveness and salvation. Despite that fact, I'm one of those with failings. And yet, Jesus lived out the command that he gave us in verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. Even during that whole incident, even before Judas left to do his betrayal, his betrayal, Jesus gave us even another gift. He knew that those of us that remained then and those of us that would come after would need something. We're creatures that need symbols, images, sacraments. Sometimes it's, it's not enough just to be told, well, everything's going to be okay. Especially in these challenging times right now, right? And I don't know about you, but, 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 but I, almost, I almost can't believe this time that I'm living through. I don't feel like I'm free to go anywhere that I want to. I don't free, feel like it's, it's that I can go to the grocery store every day. I mean, it's a big deal. I went to the grocery store uh, last Sunday, and, and I felt like I was armored up like I was on a combat patrol. I had a hat, gloves, mask on. I had a jacket on that I was going to take off and wash. I mean, I came out of there, I'm thinking, wow, where's my M16? I'm just saying. 
And maybe I'm just a little naive. Maybe I'm just a little too spoiled. I mean, I'd love to be able to go to the grocery store and get some black licorice. Can't do that. This COVID thing is, is, is something that has really made a dent into our society. We'll never be the same for it. But truly, right now is a time when we get to use that gift that God gave us. I tell people it's kind of a surreal time right now, but not really surreal. It's almost too real. We need more than just a good sermon. We need something we can taste, something we can see, something we can touch, something we can smell. We need a real experience of the living, living, risen Christ. We've read about the washing of the feet, and I've, I've even seen Monday, Monday Thursday services where pastors wash the feet of others. I remember one in particular where a pastor whose wife had gone through cancer and was healed was brought up, and he washed her feet, and it was the most emotional, touching thing I think that I've witnessed on a Monday Thursday. It was amazing. A powerful time. We've all experienced the betrayals in our lives. It seems like it's almost piling on to talk about those times because everyone within the sound of my voice knows firsthand about those disheartening times of betrayal. No one escapes that in our lives. But God knew we were were creatures that needed symbols and images and sacraments, and so he gave us this wonderful time of communion. You see, back in the day, when you dined, when you ate, when you supped with someone. Enemies were not invited to this table. This was for the inner circle of family and friends. And so God, knowing that things like this don't really change, gave us this this forever in our existence gift of personally and intimately supping with him in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This is a time when we prepare our hearts to be turned towards God as that loving Father, the creator of our bodies and our souls. This is the gift that he gives us today to have such a time that it's only between us and God. And yet a time when we can do this together as a body. So at this point, I'm going to ask Pastor, Pastor Terry to come back up and lead us as a church, as a body, and yet to lead us individually into that Lord's Supper. Pray your week as well. Thank you, Pastor Dan. I want to invite you, if you haven't uh, already, but get your emblems. And and, and listen, don't get, uh, there's a lot of different theological persuasions concerning this. Uh, But but don't get hung up on the emblems, uh, but just bring your heart. And bring something that would be symbolic of a cracker and and the juice that you could be able uh, to just tap into at this time and be reminded 
of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we see this intimate time with Jesus that Pastor J Dan just shared about. It was his last time, really, with all of his disciples together before uh, he died on the cross. And it centers on uh, a common meal, but it's also where he inaugurated the Lord's Supper. Now, now, we didn't see a lot of detail on it in the Gospel of John, but the other Gospels give more detail and, and greater definition. Uh, but I want to focus on the one part uh, in the Gospel of John that we read about. At the beginning, it says that Jesus loved his own in the world. And he's talking about his disciples. Imagine this. He's looking at his disciples. He's feeding them a meal. He's inaugurating this remembrance of him. And what are they doing? Well, Luke tells us they're, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Who's the closest to Jesus? And, and who's got the most position and the most power? And yet it says that Jesus loved his own, those disciples in the world. And then it says he loved them to the end. And it's interesting because it isn't really a time sequence that he loved them until he died. But it said he loved them. He loved these guys to the limits. I find that so powerful because he loved them. It doesn't, whatever they were doing, he loved them to the limits, even though he was totally aware of their past failures. Remember James and John as they're walking through a town and they're trying to reach people for Jesus and share the good news and nobody was responding. So what did they say? Let's just call down fire, Jesus. And, and Jesus said, no, no, that's not what we're about. He loved them, even though not only their past falterings, but their future failings. We know that Thomas would be doubting, Peter would be denying, and of course the disciples would be scattering. And he loved them through that. And then it says that he also, he loved them in the midst of their present flaws. We see these disciples, uh, they're around this table, and then they have these dirty feet under the table that Jesus is stooping down and serving to wash them. And they didn't even think about it. They were concerned about their position and their placement and their personal power. I, I think what I want us to see as we move toward our communion time, loved ones, is that, well, we would understand that the power of God is always manifest in and through the love of God. See, true love is always going to see people past their present vulnerabilities and see them in the midst of their future possibilities. And that's exactly what Jesus did with his disciples. He's just hours away from giving himself and expressing the ultimate triumph of self-sacrifice by dying on the cross. And the purpose of that was not only to show us his love, but to destroy the works of death, to destroy the power and defeat the power of the enemy in our lives. Colossians 2 says that he triumphed over them through the cross. And I want to remind you today, friends, that you're not stuck because of the cross. It's the, the cross represents the ultimate victory that Jesus Christ brought to us and to our lives. I mean, it is the Nike swoosh of Christianity. It is the emblem that reminds us of the victory that Jesus Christ has wrought. 
It was around this table of communion uh, that Jesus really focuses on two things. Throughout the chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, seven times the word is referenced to Jesus or used by Jesus. And it's interesting to me that his last command is that he says, I want you to love one another even as I have loved you. He didn't say, I want you to be more zealous. I don't want you to be more dedicated. I don't want you to be more committed. He says, here's the greatest new commandment that you would love one another, even as I have loved you. And so we see in the process of this chapter, two things. That Jesus focuses his disciples, his followers, and you and I today on our love for one another. And the second thing that we don't pick up from John chapter 13, but from the other gospels of this narrative is Jesus says this. He says, I simply want you to remember. I want you to remember me. I want you to remember what I've done with you. I want you to remember what I'm doing for you. And I want you to remember, he says, that we're going to do this again in the kingdom when we're together. And so this morning, I'm not sure where you are. Maybe you feel like you have some failures, that this is a good time to come. Maybe you feel like you need to experience the love of God more. Receive it. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you that in this season where we really are isolated, you can still reach out and touch somebody and remind them that you love them, that you care for them, that you're there for them. Maybe some of you just need to be healed or deal with some of the fears that can come. The cross took care of the ultimate fear, the fear of death. It took care of the brokenness that sin brings to our life as we respond to Jesus. And so this morning, I want you to be reminded and I want us just to simply sing together, Amazing Grace. And then we'll receive the emblems together. And as you get ready to receive this, say, Lord, what is it you want to speak? What do you want to do in my life as I receive these emblems that remind me of your great love to love one another and the victory that you bring on the cross today? 